take a deep breath because we're going to be talking about performance anxiety today. And my guest has some strategies for conquering your deepest performance sabotaging fear. Hello, this is Judy Rodman. You're listening to All Things Vocal Podcast. This is the audio version of the blog you can find at judyrodman.com. Ingela Onstadt is a classical soprano, licensed mental health counselor, and a mindset coach for performers. Her coaching business, Courageous Artistry, supports performing artists in their quests to perform at the top of their abilities. She specializes in helping performers address fears that affect not only their careers, but also their well-being. Gotta love that. She has thousands of hours of clinical experience as a therapist and sees clients with a broad range of ages and issues. She has presented on the topic of performance anxiety at institutions across the United States. And in addition, she is a soprano who has enjoyed a varied international career in opera, concert work, and contemporary music. Operatic highlights include performances throughout Germany, Canada, and the United States, and she continues to maintain an active performing career. Find out more about Angela at www.courageousartistry.com, and I'll leave that link in the podcast notes. Now, on to the interview. Welcome, Ingla. I'm so happy to have you on All Things Vocal. Thank you, Judy. I'm really glad to be here. You know, I really like it a ton that you are a, a therapist who works with performers, who is also a performer, because there are some things that if you haven't actually been on stage in that situation that you really can't understand. I, I believe that with all my heart. So uh, when and why did you decide to add mental health therapist to your career as a renowned and successful classical vocalist? Well, it was a kind of an interesting journey. I always just was so focused on music, opera especially, and I wanted to make my career in that. And I, I had the the luck and the good fortune um, to do so for a while. And I was living in Germany at the time where there's a very thriving opera scene. Uh, Germany is kind of like Mecca for opera singers. Mm -hmm. And there you can be under full-time employment with benefits and retirement and paid leave and all of the things wow. that are very luxurious in, in any type of performing arts field. But then I had a couple big life changes and I decided to come back to the United States and I had never thought about doing anything other than music. So what I did was when I came back here, I, I enrolled in a master's degree in vocal performance, uh, really more than anything, just to buy myself some time to figure out, do I want to go the academic route? What do I want to do? But I, I thought, well, I might as well get a master's under my belt. And I had already been teaching voice privately for, for years at this point. And then I sort of quickly saw that academia wasn't necessarily going to be for me. And it's also a very, very, very competitive field. Um, there are oftentimes maybe 100 applicants for every open voice professorship out there in the in the country. It's also restrictive, isn't it? Like they don't necessarily want you to go off and teach what you know, but they want you to teach what uh, they want you to teach. Correct. Mm -hmm. It can definitely be that way as well. And, and so as I was going through this degree... 
I was thinking about my my passions and and what I enjoy doing and what are my natural talents and I've always been the person in my group of friends who people come to to talk over things with and I um, thought at the time well maybe I should pursue something like psychology or counseling but I wasn't sure if I needed an extra bachelor's to do so but it turned out I didn't I enrolled in a master of arts in counseling and went through a very strenuous master's program for three years with thousand hour plus internship and and whatnot and I, I saw very quickly that it was it was a true um, passion and joy for me and also not unlike the art of making music or unlike teaching in which I had already been in the private teaching studio for so many years you have to as you know bring your full attention listen very well be incredibly understanding and empathetic know how to read in between the lines to figure out what people are trying to communicate that they might not be saying or might not know how to say and so just the act of spending an hour in a room with another human being in a very intimate way felt very natural to me and and I also saw quite quickly um, after a few years in the field that really I could bring the knowledge I had about um, how mental health and emotional health affects performers and specifically help a performing artists out there in the world, which I hadn't originally intended to do. At first, I wanted to keep my two careers quite separate. Um, But thus, I launched my business, Courageous Artistry, which is a coaching business. And in coaching, I can work with international clients. I can work with anybody, anywhere. Whereas in therapy, I'm really um, relegated to working with people just inside the state where I'm licensed. Ah, because, yeah, licensing. Exactly. And, you know, being a great therapist is really a creative exercise too, isn't it? Very much so. You have to be really creative at thinking outside the the boundaries and, and asking yourself what you're really seeing and thinking of different ways to address that. Yes. You are a generous spirit too. I know that because I took one of your workshops and <laughs> was amazed at the material oh, well, thank you. that you shared. You know, you branded your coaching work as courageous artistry and you specialize in performance anxiety. So tell me something I heard you talk about in that, in that workshop. Tell me about how Maslow's hierarchy of needs has anything to do with stage anxiety. That just blew my mind. I never had thought about that. Sure. Well, for those not familiar, Abraham Maslow was a psychologist, um, in the 20th century, and he created what he called a hierarchy of needs, which sort of looks like a pyramid, which has mm-hmm. six different levels in it. And as I was thinking about performance anxiety, which I, I oftentimes sort of struggle with the term performance anxiety, because I think it encompasses so much more than that, um, yet we maybe don't have the right terminology yet, or I'm, I'm still on a quest to find it. But I thought, why is it that we feel the way we do when we are afraid in a performance or before a performance in a rehearsal, even when we have the fear of putting ourselves out there, for example, going to an audition, or even for some people planning to go to an audition is too big of a hurdle, even though they can spend hours perfecting their craft. And through my training as a therapist, you learn a lot about the origins of of different struggles that we have as humans, such as uh, depression or anxiety, which are two very common struggles that I think all of us can relate to. And Anxiety is really just, in my estimation, the, a, a flavor of the root emotion of fear, which is the most basic of human emotions. None of us are exempt from feeling fear. In fact, if we were likely, it would mean that we had damage to certain parts of our brain. And fear is there to keep us safe. And fear can pop up in many different layers and levels of life. And so that's why I sort of found a good explanation in Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, in which he says, 
If our basic needs are not covered, food, water, shelter, air, we're going to be very consumed with trying to get those covered, right? We're going to be very afraid of where our next meal might come from or if we're going to lose our house tomorrow. Then he moves up to the next level of uh, what he calls safety and security needs, you know? So he says only when our, our basic needs are covered do we then have the headspace to even worry about our safety and our security. Then it moves up to love and belonging, which I find is sometimes the most interesting layer of all of this. And I think this is where a lot of our fear comes from as performers. We have a very deep need after our basic needs and after our needs for safety and security to feel loved and to feel like we belong. And anytime we put ourselves out there in a big way, we risk rejection. Right. There's another way to think about that is uh, we need to know that our voice is valid. Yes, very much so. We need to know that our voice is heard, that we are seen, that we are valid, that we are okay just how we are. And I see a, a lot of performers really struggling in their performance anxiety, specifically in the love and belonging area. Sure. We have a biological need to be accepted and loved by others. In fact, loneliness is one of the biggest uh, new epidemics that they're talking about in this country. They say it's almost uh, just as dangerous as smoking to our health. And of course, then during the pandemic, we're all experiencing greater levels of isolation. And if we were you know, back in Paleolithic times, had we been living in you know, a small tribe or group of people, had, if we had been rejected by that group of people, you know, in, in essence, if we weren't receiving love and belonging from these people and we were to be expunged, it might have meant death for us, right? So, mm -hmm. so these are very real needs. And then like the wolf out of the pack. Exactly, yeah. exactly. After love and belonging, I believe, I don't have this hierarchy right in front of me. Maybe it just has five levels. I Perhaps I misspoke. Is the need for esteem, right? The need for respect, the need for self-esteem, the need to feel worthy. And then at the very, very top of Maslow's hierarchy, he calls it self-actualization, which is just the desire to be the best that we can be. So I really see our performers' needs and struggles and fears coming out in the three uppermost layers of Maslow's hierarchy. Our need for love and belonging can be threatened. Our need for esteem and respect can be threatened. And definitely our need for and our desire for self-actualization can be threatened. And even the very bottom layer, I mean, I know a lot of session singers last year that were really busy and just at the top of their game and, and making a lot of money because they were, you know, actra performers. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the rug was pulled out and there was no income. And, you know, you don't know where your house payment's coming from. You don't yes. know where your next meal is coming from, how you're going to feed your kids. And so, yeah, you get scared. Yeah, sure. And then when that, for example, is threatened, when I don't know if I'll be able to pay my mortgage next month because the gigs aren't coming in, yes, then we get very consumed with, with that naturally. So, Right. And you would wonder also at the other end of the spectrum, why would a really successful, very famous artist be nervous a la Carly Simon, you know, sure. but uh, the thing is that sometimes you can know a billion people or a million or a thousand or whatever, and not be close to anybody or not feel like you're close sure. to anybody. And that is a scary sort of fake sort of life. Yeah. Very, very lonely. Justin Bieber with his song Lonely. I mean, you just, you just watch that video and you see what we're talking about here. So that can lead to anxiety about not just stage, but career, just in general, like, why am I doing, if this is success, God, you're in heaven, you know, sure. <laughs> what is failure? Yeah, 
And I often say to my to my younger clients and, and students that I work with, they should never make the assumption that that I think oftentimes when you're young, you make the assumption once I get to a certain level or once I get to a certain <laughs> skill level, I will no longer feel anxious. And I think oftentimes the inverse is true because the further we go, the more we have riding on it. Oh, yeah. So uh, I want to talk a little bit here about something, you know, I work with performers too, and, and have worked with a lot of performers with stage anxiety. I, I want to tell you what I've had success with, and I, I would love for you to speak to it and explain what you think is going on. Okay. Sure. Uh, and that is that very creative people tend to have too many sensory feelers out there, and it makes them really good at being a songwriter or an interpreter of a lyric, you know, very good artist, but they read the room too well. In fact, they make stuff up. They think I suck. I know they think I suck. Mm -hmm. You know, so what I've found that has worked is to use acting technique where I get them talking to one heart and focusing all those sensory feelers in an array like a laser beam towards the one heart for the purpose, not of narcissistically delivering their message, but for the very specific goal of getting the response from the person the lyric is, is to. It's acting technique, but as Sanford Meisner says, great acting is behaving authentically in fictional circumstances. And when I get them focused on singing to the right heart, whether that's uh, a person it, that, that is real or there, but usually they're not, uh, a person they don't know, somebody they make up, uh, their own heart, which they have to be schizophrenic and sort of you know, <laughs> move that heart out there. So it's an external thing we're doing with our voices or to God, which is a weird one, you know, can't see that. Or, or if it is to the audience, to the one heart of the audience, instead of to everybody, like a flashlight beam, they become a laser beam. And that really helps with stage anxiety, uh, unless they have, you know, some deeper clinical uh, issues or and have gotten that way, you know, everybody can, there can be a trigger tripped and, and they really need more help than that. But what do you think that's about? Um, well, I think that's a very good technique to use with people. And I often use it in my own performing and I have used it in the past when I was teaching voice as well. And I think what it's about, and this is just, just my own opinion of this, but um, I, I do think there yeah, would be some science to back this up. Is that at any given point in time, all of us humans, performer or not, are constantly scanning our environment for threats. We don't realize this. Mm -hmm. It's happening on such a deep level. But through our senses and our brain, we are constantly perceiving our environment for threats because survival is our number one job on this planet. Right. Thriving mm -hmm. is not our number one job. Right. So we have to yeah. have to get a little creative if we want to thrive. So. If I am standing, for example, in front of a crowd of people, every single one of these people could be a threat. And back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, those people's estimation of me could very much uh, create a sense of fear and safety in my sense of you know safety, love and belonging. Yeah, all of those things. New York Times critic could be oh. in the audience and like have a had a bad lunch. Sure, you could have a critic in the audience, right? Your your next mortgage payment could be on the line because you think that somebody's in the audience or somebody is in the audience who might have a big impact with their words and what they say about your career. These are all very real threats. So I like to normalize anxiety for people and just let them know 
you are not crazy. This is completely yeah. normal to mm-hmm. feel this way. And there's nothing actually per se wrong with feeling this way. And our goal is never to make anxiety or fear disappear. That's an impossibility. That's going to be a battle we cannot win. So when when we are in sort of a, a fight or flight circumstance where we're scanning our environment for threats and we're perceiving a lot of threats in the environment in the crowd, for example, giving people the job or rather giving the brain the job and the reminder, hey, what are you here to do? What brought you mm-hmm. to music and to singing in the first place? Generally, for most of us, it is that we wanted to be able to communicate something with our own personal voice and interpretation. And if we can take the kind of squirreliness of our brain at that moment and give it that job to do, focus on the words, focus on that one person's heart, focus on the heart of the room, we, we kind of distract our brain in a way. We don't give it as much mm-hmm. time to be going in all the squirrely directions of, oh, what if this? What if that? What if they think this? What if they think that? Where we engage in, like you mentioned, a lot of mind reading. We pretend we can read minds. We pretend we can see the future. We make gross assumptions about people in the room. And if we can distract our brain from that kind of um, its its natural job that it wants to do of of perceiving the threats in the environment, then we can help quiet down the rest of our nervous system. Because if I can really engage with my material, let's say the poetry mm-hmm. of the song I'm singing, I I have mm-hmm. something to focus on, something that's positive, something that I can do something about as well, right? It's more mm-hmm. empowering and puts us back in the driver's seat. So I can definitely see how that technique has worked out well for for people that you have taught and will continue to work out well because it's it's focusing the brain on that on that very important job that makes sense to me then that some people are way less nervous on stage than they are in regular life because they know what they're there to do sure it's kind of an intuitive sort of weird thing where they come alive on stage when you never know that they would yeah you know, just by meeting them a lot of uh, actors i think are that way in interviews they seem like really really like nervous and not very connected yeah and their acting scenes they're like zeroed in mm-hmm. so that's, yeah that's, inter- that's interesting yeah that's what we might refer to as the famous flow state where we are uh, so engaged in that moment that all of the noise sort of falls yeah. away but i'm sure that it, you've had this in your experience as well not all performers are extroverts and not all performers right. necessarily Most- have a healthy robust self-esteem that the performing that we do is sort of a separate skill set and it does not automatically mean that we're extroverted, you know, people who are, who are very confident. <laughs> right. Right. I know that in like schmooze parties where I don't really have a, a reason to say something and it's just all polite chat and how are you and, you know, all this kind of stuff and I don't really know them. And I, I feel, you know, socially challenged. Me too. But give me a million people to talk to. And if I have a reason to say it, I got no problem. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm actually I'm a closet introvert. I, I fake extrovert very well, <laughs> but I'm I'm a real introvert and and the after parties and things of that nature are always my worst nightmare. I'd much rather be on stage <laughs> in front of a million people than in a room talking yeah. to one hundred strangers. <laughs> oh yeah. And I bet you a lot of people that are listening can bear witness. Yes, I'm sure. Well, tell us a, a little bit about the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system responses. I'm getting my tongue tangled here again. That act as the gas and the brake pedals for our brain. Because getting back to specifics about how the brain works, I find that fascinating. 
Yeah. So this is is the brain and the entire nervous system. And and once again, this is sort of what I do in order to help clients understand their biology better. And really at the end, just to help them see this is a normal reaction of the body. There's nothing wrong with it. Yet we do have more control over it than we think, but we have to learn how to control it in the in the most effective ways rather than the sort of standard ways in which we generally try to control it. Picturing everybody naked doesn't work. No, does not always. <laughs> if it did, I, I wouldn't have a job, right? Because we all know that one. <laughs> um, so, so the way our nervous system is built is that we sort of have um, two main parts of the what's called the autonomic nervous system: the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. I'll start with the sympathetic, which is the one that people generally are more familiar with. Another name for the sympathetic nervous system is our fight, flight, or freeze response. So almost everybody's heard of fight or flight, fight, flight, or freeze. And this is once again, when our brain is scanning our environment for threats and it picks up a threat. Let's say, for example, right now, somebody were to barge in my office door, even though nobody is home, what would happen in my body? My brain, before I even really can kind of know it in a conceptual way, there's a threat in the room. It is going to shoot a lot of stress chemicals through my body. The, The two main ones that most people know are adrenaline and cortisol. And it is going to send my um, heart racing, right, in order to pump more blood through my body more quickly Mm -hmm. to fill me with energy. My muscles will fill with energy. My digestion will shut down. My highest powers of thinking, my sort of most human part of my brain, loses blood flow. That's our sort of logical, rational brain, right? Because there's no time for logic or, or being rational in that moment. We have to act, or rather react mm-hmm. to the danger. Yeah. My brainstem, sometimes affectionately known as the lizard brain or the limbic system, the mm-hmm. most ancient part of the brain, it, that, that um, gains blood flow. And all of this is getting us ready to either, I'm going to either run out my door, right? Or I'm going to scream and fight and, and kick back. Or I'm going to, if it's really bad, uh, freeze and play dead. So I will do all of this before I've even recognized what is happening. And that is just the sort of um, built-in security system in our bodies and all creatures have it. The freeze factor, is that just another name for being numb in performance a lot of times? I would say so. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. without knowing for sure exactly what's happening with that human, um, you know, we'd have to probably scan their brain in order to know, but um Yes, I would say that when people feel very numb or sort of have an out-of-body experience when performing, that a lot of times that might likely be due to extreme nerves and uh, essentially extreme uh, fight-or-flight response. Uh, You know what? Now, I I could also say that there might be those moments, those sort of more magical moments we have on stage where it's out-of-body but in a good way, (laughs) where we are so in the moment, in that flow state that it was almost like we were in a dream while it was happening. But that's a very different lived experience than the one of abject fear and panic. Yeah. But so what this is, is this is the gas pedal in our body that is going to help keep us safe and protect us. As performers, we are very used to having to deal with this, right? That's the racing heart, the sweaty palms, the tummy ache, having to run to the potty 10 times, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And oftentimes it can make us feel very unfocused and not very present when we're performing because we feel that sense of terror. So that's the gas pedal. Now, we need a little bit of this gas pedal, right, to get excited and to get moving and and up and going. But when we have our foot on the gas pedal for too long, it's very exhausting to us, right? We're meant to be able to move through that state and hopefully 
burn through that energy that has been created in our body so that we can rest afterwards, right? So we're meant to run it off or fight it off. Or you see if dogs get in a little tussle with one another, they, what do they do afterwards? They sort of shake, right? They have that shake that they do. Um, And Mm -hmm. that's shaking off that energy. So that's bringing the nervous system back to rest. So we're the, we're the same. However, in performing, we unfortunately don't get to have that rest, right? We have to go onto stage and we have to perform oftentimes in that state. So what we want to learn how to do is we want to learn how to engage our parasympathetic nervous system, which is also referred to as the brakes or also called the rest and digest part of the nervous system. Mm -hmm. So we want to gain more facility between um, gas and brakes. And most of us, we we realize that our foot is on the gas, but we don't know how to get it off. And what we have mm-hmm. to learn how to do is to press that brake pedal a little bit better, namely to uh, employ skills that are going to help bring the nervous system into more equilibrium. Now, of course, in a performance, we are likely never going to feel completely in parasympathetic response. We're not going to fully be in rest and digest response. Otherwise, that would just be strange, right? That's not completely possible. But we don't want to be at level 10 of of fight or flight because it's really going to impede our performance most likely. And it's also going to be very, very uncomfortable and stressful for us. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about the balance between the brake and the gas pedal. Yes. That's funny because there's, you know, we need that balance between breath support and breath control too much breath support and it blows, you know, blows too much air, mm-hmm. too much holding back and you don't get enough air flow to vibrate the, the voice in a confident way. Very true. So it's, it, again, it's, it's funny how the parallels uh, work, but this is, it's a balance. I would imagine that how you manage your set list can help with that, right? Yeah, I would definitely think so. You know, now that you're mentioning the breath and the balance of that, that's actually highly connected to our sympathetic and parasympathetic as well, Judy. So Ah. um, the vagus nerve, which is very important in the parasympathetic response, also connects to the diaphragm. So this is the reason why when we feel very nervous, we can't get our breath under us because the vagus nerve has kind of gone offline and it's not communicating as well with the diaphragm. We can really only truly support our breath well if we have some level of of parasympathetic response in our system so that the diaphragm release can happen. Yeah. The fight or flight response, of course, everything's going to tighten in here and in the abs. And so the diaphragm is not stretched wide and you've got all kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. So yes, (laughs) one of the first things that helps people even with uh, anxiety, especially speakers that I work with, is uh, is changing their posture before they go on stage. And you mentioned that Mm -hmm. the Amy Cuddy TED Talk about power poses, act as if and ye shall be. Talk to me a little bit about how if you use your facial and body language and posture in a different way, you can change your mindset. Yes. And this is something that some of your listeners may be familiar with because it was a very famous TED Talk by the uh, psychologist. I believe she's a psychologist, Amy Cuddy. Mm -hmm. And she's done research to show essentially that we do not have to wait to feel a certain way let me think of how I want to phrase this. If we are feeling, for example, very, very nervous, oftentimes what we want is we want that nervousness to go away before we can take some type of action, right? Before we can walk out onto stage and feel comfortable. But what we can do instead is we can actually just move our body to a different position that the body recognizes as a relaxed and confident state. 
And then it <laughs> triggers some more of that emotion. So we oftentimes get it the wrong way around. We we want to wait to feel differently before we can act differently. And essentially what yeah. she's saying here is we can act differently by putting our body in a different position. And that will then trigger a different feeling for us. And this once again goes back a lot to the parasympathetic and sympathetic response of the nervous system, which is just like you said, when we are feeling threatened, when we are feeling nervous and afraid, we contract, we collapse in. Oftentimes people will cross their arms and make themselves somewhat small in an attempt to protect our vital organs. So we literally feel as if we are under attack and that's why we curl in on ourselves. Whereas if we are, if we can open up our bodies and we can, you know, make ourselves nice and tall and broad and wide, take up a lot of space, mm -hmm. Even if we don't feel that way right away, we're signaling to our nervous system, I'm safe, I'm in control, I'm powerful. And then oftentimes, you know, feelings that reflect that will will be more likely to occur. Yeah. And I and the opposite, too. I, I had a student one time who was really very confident, great singer, songwriter, performer who was on a label and, and out there doing some some PR tours and things like that. And they sent me on the road with him because he was having a lot of vocal issues. And when I saw him work with the public, you know, like we're a DJ or something, he's real tall. Mm -hmm. And what he did was he he crouched down to not appear arrogant. Yes. Interesting. And that triggered all of this. And then the voice wasn't working very well. Yeah. So what did he do? Tried harder. Uh -huh. And it was like a vicious cycle going that. that way. And when I called his attention to that, like, you know, your job is not to be meek. Mm -hmm. Your job is to be strong and, and gentle with people, but not posturally come down to their level, literally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can definitely so see He that. acted as if he was not confident and he became not confident mm -hmm. yeah uh, funny how how posture affects our brain oh it really it really does i find it so interesting well all right you know a lot of strategies and i know you can't name all of them and just like vocal training you know we can talk in generalities that work for everybody but it's really good to have a one-on-one -on -one for specific help for what you're bringing that is manifesting in problems yes. right but that said, what are some kind of strategies that you use to teach people to deal with this uh, stage, whatever it is that you stage fright, mm -hmm. stage anxiety, mm -hmm. stage numbness, however it manifests? Yeah, I have lots of uh, different tips and tricks. And, and like you mentioned, it is very sort of specific from person to person what's going to maybe resonate most with them. Uh, first and foremost, I really like to talk about the importance of having a lot of tools in your toolkit. And a lot of these are things that are just generally known in society that you don't need any expert help with, yet we don't do them. So that's part of the problem. It's sort of like, we all know what we need to do in order to be healthy people. We need to eat right and we need to exercise and we need to get sleep and we need to be around people we love. But yet many of us struggle to put some of those basic building blocks into place. And it's the same with our mental and emotional health. If we are not taking good care of our physical selves, we cannot expect that our mental and emotional selves will be doing well. So very often, one of the very first places I start with people is I ask them, what does an average day look like for you? Oh, what are your sleep habits? What are you eating? What do you do for the first thing in the morning when you wake up? What time do you go to bed? What time do you wake up? And I take a very broad look at their basic 
self-care and their, we call it sleep hygiene, right? The science of sleep and getting good sleep is so, so important because so many performers are highly ambitious, highly um, energetic, motivated people. And oftentimes that personality type will sort of put their own physical well-being a little too far down the list. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll, they'll prioritize a lot of other things before they will prioritize their physical well-being. And without physical well-being, it's going to be very, very hard to, like I said, achieve emotional and um, mental equilibrium. So oftentimes just being able to look at, for example, are you getting enough sleep? And are you sleeping at regular hours? Because that's going to provide the best sleep. Also, you know, are you exercising? If so, how much? You'd be surprised, but actually highly strenuous exercise. Too much of it is also not incredibly good for our nervous system. Sometimes it puts us in too high of a fight or flight uh, response. So actually, yeah, for some people, yes. it's increasing exercise. For other people, it's slowing it down. Again, it's balance. Yes, mm-hmm. it's balance. And then one of my favorite sort of quick tips to teach people is a breathing strategy that I refer to as the hissing breath. This sort of goes back to, oh, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. this goes back to just knowing what we know about how the nervous system works and how essentially, how can we best press down the brake most quickly? And one of the ways is going to be through breathing exercises. But I like to be very specific in how I teach this, because if you ask anybody on the street, you know, what can you do in order to calm anxiety? Most people will say, take deep breaths. But then if you ask somebody, okay, Joe, take a deep breath for me. What does Joe do? <sighs> Yeah. <laughs> sort of a big in and a big out. Well, need a paper bag. yeah, do that 10 times in a row and you're going to feel worse than when you started. I mean, right now, even just doing it twice, I noticed an increase in my heart rate. So what we want to do is we want to employ breathing strategies where we have a very extended exhale gesture. So a short inhale mm. and a long exhale. We can do this by counting, but I find the quickest and easiest way to do it is through what I call the hissing breath, where you take in a very, very easy, and I'm going to say it once more time, very easy, very gentle inhale, don't overdo it, through the nose, and then hiss or blow out your exhale as if you're blowing through a straw or you're hissing like a snake. So just to demonstrate it once. I'm just hissing out my exhale until I get to the end. I'm not forcing it to be super long. But of course, by closing down the aperture of my mouth, either via the hiss or blowing like I'm blowing through a straw, I'm able to dam back the breath enough to slow down Mm -hmm. the exhale. Whereas if I just Mm -hmm. breathe, if I just exhale through a wide open mouth, there's only so far I can go to control that. So when we have any type of breath in which the exhale is at least twice as long as the inhale, I'll say that again, exhale is at least twice as long as the inhale, that automatically stimulates our vagus nerve, which is responsible for some of the parasympathetic response. This is also, Judy, um, incidentally, the reason why most of us singers, once we get through a few phrases of that first piece, start feeling a lot calmer. Because what do we do in singing? We take a quick inhale, and then we sing on the exhale gesture. The vocal cords are providing the hiss. (laughs) Exactly. The vocal cords are providing the damming back of the breath. So, you know, I I say this to singers all the time. You do this naturally on stage. Do you feel better after singing a few phrases? The answer is always yes. Not to say that anxiety can't spike 
later on in performance. But so by doing that hissing breath, we can really sort of calm ourselves down. I always suggest to people to do it five or 10 times in a row and then to Mm -hmm. pause for a moment and to take stock of how I feel now. What difference is doing this? Become aware. Mm -hmm. If you don't feel as calm as you would like to, do it another five to 10 times in a row. And just see and keep keep going until you've reached where you want to be. Once again, the goal is never to fully make anxiety go away. And that's not even possible. But when we learn to manage it better, it puts us back in the driver's seat. And that in and of itself oftentimes is enough to really help people feel a sense of control. And I myself have used that hissing breath while sitting on stage waiting to sing with a symphony. Now, of course, being a classical singer, I'm not mic'd, so it'd be maybe a little bit different if you've got a mic that's live right in front of your face. But even then, you know, I didn't hiss. Oh, you can breath. turn your head. You can turn your head, or you could just let it, let the exhale out through a little smile and nobody would hear it. Exactly. Right. And so I've done this literally on stage before when I can sense that my heart starts racing and, and that I'm, you know, pressing down on that gas pedal. Right. Wow. Okay, let me turn to this. You talk about how we can be more positive, but not in a Pollyanna kind of way, like everything is fine, you know, everything when everything is not. And if we try to fake it uh, too much, like we're really telling ourselves we must believe in something positive here, and there's really a lot of negative stuff going on. How do you do that? How do you become more, I'll use your terms, realistically positive? Yeah. Instead of the, the the kind of positive that the brain doesn't really believe anyway. Yeah. This is where I think um, we have good intentions as humans and, and within a culture, but it, it it's not going to work for everybody. So I, I fully like the intention of just think positively and everything will go your way. Or don't think negatively because then bad things will happen to you. But that's not real. We know that even Mm -hmm. bad things can happen to even very positive, optimistic people. And good, wonderful things can also happen to very negative and pessimistic people. We know that tragedy and trauma occurs and it's not our fault. And also our brain, because it's hardwired for negativity due to these, you know, this need to survive and always scanning our environment for what could be a threat. Uh, I like to tell my clients, I heard this once, I can't remember where, but I loved it. The brain cares more where the poisonous berries are than where the delicious berries are. Oh, I like that. Makes sense, right? Yeah. So of course the brain, Uh in order to stay alive, we need to know where the poison is. We don't care as much about the delicious berries. We just need to make sure we don't eat the poisonous berries. So Because our brain, we have this factory setting of negativity. This has nothing to do with our personality or anything like that. It's just how we're wired as beings in this big, scary world. We do have to work a little bit harder in order not to allow our brain to go down too many of those negative rabbit trails where we start projecting things onto people and pretending like we can read minds and everybody's saying this bad stuff about me. And because that's going to leave us with a very negative emotional consequence or a very difficult or uncomfortable emotional consequence. So just using positive affirmations for many, many people is not going to be enough because if I'm just feeling wretched and I'm feeling terrible about this performance and I know I don't sing this piece as well as I would like to, and I've been sick and I've got a tickle, but I've got to get up, whatever the situation is, 
I, if I just tell myself, Ingela, you're amazing and everything's going to be perfect and you're going to rock this, probably my brain is going to talk back to me and tell me that's a load of BS, <laughs> right? My brain is going to go, nah, you're a liar. And I'm not, I'm not going to have any credibility with myself. So this <laughs> being able to believe what we say to ourselves in these positive affirmations is key because if I can't believe this positive Pollyanna message, it doesn't leave me feeling any better. It just leaves me feeling in a way, I think sometimes more stuck and more hopeless. Like there's this idea that I should quote unquote, be able mm -hmm. to believe this 100% positive mm -hmm. thought. And if I can't, then somehow I'm flawed or bad. So yeah. it's very, very important for us to be realistic with the new types of affirmations or thoughts we're creating for ourselves. So for example, if it's me and I have a concert tomorrow and I've been under the weather and I haven't been able to practice as much, and I know because I'm an expert, that this piece is not where I would like it to be. It doesn't help me to tell myself that it's just going to be fabulous and wonderful. But what I might be able to believe and what might feel better to me is, even though I'm not where I would like to be with this piece, I've been in this situation before and it'll likely all turn out fine. Or yeah. even though I'm not where I would like to be with this piece, I'm very much a perfectionist and very critical of my own abilities and likely mm -hmm. the audience is not going to notice any of these flaws that I'm imagining, right? So that's just two examples of something I might be able to comfort myself with that's definitely not in the yay cheerleading positive affirmation realm, but it's still comforting to me and that's what I'm looking for, right? To remind myself that everything will be okay. It might not go how I want it to go, yet I will survive I am strong. I am robust. I've made it through hard times before. And, you know, then I think we can start little by little changing some of our thought patterns into more and more positive and supportive ones. But in our really mm -hmm. low, 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 wretched times, if we haven't already been in the habit of learning how to speak to ourselves differently, we're probably going to throw the positive affirmations right out the window. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You could substitute focuses of your thoughts. Yes. Pick and choose the thoughts to sort of magnify them by by thinking about them. Precisely. And then you, you can't say like, don't look at that purple elephant with yes, the gold earring yes, behind you. Yes, exactly. You can say, look at that train that's coming in front. <laughs> yeah. Or just sort of like we were talking about earlier, you know, by focusing, for example, on communicating the spirit of the peace to that one heart, as you were saying, we've given our brain something positive to focus on that it has some control and power over rather than say, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, aka don't look at the purple elephant, right? If we just keep saying, I shouldn't be afraid, I don't want to feel afraid, we're just going to be very much stuck in that fear. And all of this, the way we speak to ourselves, the way our brain speaks, the, the thoughts that we have has a direct impact on the emotions that we feel. Mm -hmm. It's really good to know that we do have some control. Yes. Now, once again, I, I don't ever want to give anybody the impression that we can 100% control our thoughts, but we can definitely do a much better job than we do for sure. When should a performer seek professional help? Well, first I should probably define the differences between a therapist and a coach. You know, as a, as a psychotherapist, I'm a licensed professional. 
I um, have, you know, thousands of hours of supervision and internship. We work within the medical model of diagnosis. I do not prescribe. Therapists do, are not prescribing practitioners, but we do refer to prescribing practitioners um, quite often. We are dealing with mental health diagnoses. So unless you're paying for therapy out of pocket, which some people choose to do, or some people don't have insurance that covers their therapy, although many do and do not recognize that. There's this idea out there that therapy is mega expensive and hard to obtain, yet I have two days of a therapy practice where I all day long see people whose insurance pays me for their services. So I always like to point that out that people should really mm -hmm. check their insurance if they have it. But if you're working within the world of therapy, the idea is that you are likely functioning sort of below your baseline. Something has happened or has been happening for a while and you're recognizing I'm just not feeling like myself or mm -hmm. maybe it's been a long time since I've really felt good. Or maybe I have a lot of people mm -hmm. commenting to me, you seem very X, Y, Z. Are you okay? What's wrong? Some of the signs that we look for in the therapy realm is we look for, is this person having trouble functioning in, in one or many areas of their lives? Are they having trouble functioning in their relationships, in their social world, in their occupational world? in their self-care and sort of uh, base level self-care of hygiene and sleep and nutrition and things like this, that might be a sign that it's time to seek some therapy. Now for coaching, which is what I do exclusively with performing artists, the methodology behind coaching is a little bit different. The idea with coaching is you're already functioning pretty darn well, but you recognize that there's maybe a top five to 15% that you're struggling to reach and you want some help and support along the way to reach that. So both of these can be valid methods to use with any individual. And I have people that I work with in my coaching practice who also see therapists for other mental health issues. My barrier as a coach, when somebody comes to me, and I think I can safely say this because of, of my, um, dual professions is if it seems like your anxiety, for example, is affecting many areas of your life and you're really having trouble functioning at your baseline, then I'm going to recommend that you work with a therapist first and or that you work with a therapist in conjunction to doing coaching. Because first of all, it's not legal for me to practice therapy with people outside of my state, but I would want people to get the care that they deserve, which oftentimes means seeing somebody local in their community and perhaps being able to see a prescribing physician, et cetera. Um, I always tell people if they're curious about this or if they're not sure, they can always sign up for a consultation with me. I do a free 60-minute consultation, mm -hmm. and then I can really assess where they're at and what I think that they need. But yeah, I would say if you are a performer feeling like things are going pretty well, and of course, we all have our human moments of, of sadness and fear and all of the other parts of the you know rainbow of, of emotions that we all have. Mm -hmm. If you are kind of struggling with maybe self-image or self-confidence, being able to put yourself out there, being able to further your career in the ways that you would like, or you're having a lot of moments of very strong anxiety surrounding your performing, then a service like coaching mm -hmm. might be helpful for you. But if this is something that's impacting a lot of other things in your life and a lot of maybe of your loved ones are commenting on it, then it might be a, a good idea to seek therapy instead. Do, th do therapists sometimes 
then send people on to you for specific like coaching in the performing arts? It's a specialized thing. It is. And let me put it this way. I will hope that that it turns into that in the future, the more and more I'm out there in the world doing my thing. As it stands yet, my greatest community of referral sources for therapists is here in my home state of New Mexico. Well, we don't have a very big population here and there are not a ton (laughs) of performing artists. So I have yet to have too many therapists referring me, but I do have a lot of performers that I work with who have done therapy. And this is sort of speaking to your point that you made earlier in the session who've done therapy before, and it's oftentimes been helpful for them, but they're needing something different now. And the comment I get most often from people, Judy, is I've seen a therapist and it's been helpful, but there's a whole slice of my life that they just do not understand. And I feel like I spend too much time in session explaining to them what it is like to be a performer. And, you know, if if we were Olympians, which essentially performing artists or Olympians of another sort, we would have sports psychologists at our disposal. Right. And in the performing arts, we don't really have very many specialized services, which is the gap I'm aiming to fill. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody that's listening, I, I, I hope you realize that you don't have to put up with your chronic issues that are limiting you no. and your ability to create magic when you perform. So this is really interesting to see the different ways that that can help. Give us one more thing here. What is your RAIN, R-A-I-N acronym strategy for dealing with anxiety? Great. I will say that this is taken directly from a very famous teacher of meditation and a spiritual leader named Tara Brach, B-R-A-C-H. So you can find this on her website as well. And many people are familiar with her work. I think an important part that maybe we haven't touched on yet of learning how to manage anxiety better is learning how to process and move through our emotions in a different way. That might sound kind of nebulous, but oftentimes what happens is we have a strong emotional reaction to something. And most commonly, in my experience, what we do is we We have this uncomfortable emotion like anxiety, for example, and we say to ourselves, I don't want to feel that way. I shouldn't feel that way. I want it to go away. And we get so focused on trying to make this emotion go away that it actually makes it worse in the, in the end. We don't acknowledge it. Yeah. Yeah, We don't acknowledge Mm -hmm. it. We, we don't want to feel it. Some people won't even admit to it, which is such nonsense, right? (laughs) Oh, I don't feel scared, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) sure um you know but some people can do such a good job of even hiding it to their own selves that they are having an emotional reaction right there's one other thing i wanted to ask you before you get into this and that is one of my pet peeves is somebody backstage right before you go on stage ask you if you're nervous (laughs) that is the worst i agree (laughs) i know (laughs) get out of here Right. Yeah. Well, once again, it just brings that person's focus on, am I right? Or maybe we feel angry that somebody's asking us that. I mean, this is not the, emo- <laughs> yeah. these are probably not the emotions we desire to be feeling right before we walk right. on the stage. No. But the RAIN acronym stands for recognize, allow, investigate. And then there are two versions of the N. One is non-identification, which I'll explain in a moment. And the other one is nurture. So what she teaches is first recognize, 
what is my emotional experience right now? So for example, Judy, in that moment when somebody says, are you nervous? If I asked you to recognize what your emotional experience is in that moment, what do you think you'd say? Oh, I would be angry. Mm, angry. Because I know that they just sabotaged my performance. Yeah. Even though, and, and I would also feel bad about being angry because I know they didn't mean to. Sure. So angry, you feel guilty. It sounds mm-hmm. like you feel afraid that they've sabotaged you, mm-hmm. right? I would guess maybe in that moment you feel almost a little bit helpless or hopeless or vulnerable, right? So there can be so many different things in any given moment that that person says one thing to us. So if we were using the RAIN strategy, I would say, okay, so recognize that you feel this way. Now, what would it be like to allow ourselves to feel that way? So to allow And of course, walking right onto stage and trying to do all this at the same time is maybe going to be a little (laughs) bit much. But if we practice it in our offstage lives, we're going to be able to more effectively utilize it in that moment right before walking onto stage. So if we were processing this moment afterwards, I'm, you know, we might say, okay, what would it look like to allow that anger? Because isn't it interesting that even just what with what you just said, Judy, you said, and then I would feel guilty which is in a way a disallowance, right? It's telling yourself, I feel one way, but I shouldn't feel that way because feeling that way makes me a bad person. So exactly. Yes. So if we were uh, just going to allow ourselves, I allow this anger, we could say yes to it. Yes. I accept. I consent, right? There's many little strategies and sentences we can use there. Then we would want to go about investigating this emotion And she says, I think the way she phrases it is investigate with interest and care. And I believe the reason she says this is because we don't want to investigate it with judgment and criticism, which is what we often want to do, right? We want to investigate and say, what else is here? Maybe what do I feel? What's what's the physical sensation of this anger? Curiosity. Yeah, the curiosity of just taking a look. And just, you know, allowing this experience to be and then investigating it with interest and care. And then the final step is either, and some people resonate with one more than the other, so I like to point out both, is either non-identification, which essentially means I'm having this emotional experience, but I am me having this emotional experience. I am not anger. I am not guilt. I am not a bad person for feeling this way. I'm just a human having this emotional experience. We, we choose not to identify ourselves with it, not to label ourselves. Or the other N version is nurture. So if we were going to nurture ourselves in that moment, we might ask ourselves, what do I need right now? What do I need? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there something I could do maybe for I need myself? To take that hissing breath. Yeah, maybe <laughs> I need to take that hissing breath and kind of be able to release some of that anger and that guilt that I feel over the anger, for example. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's just fascinating. I could talk to you all day about this. Subject. Well, I can talk about this stuff all day. So <laughs> I, I totally believe that. So again, uh, Ingla, where can we find you and your services? Yes. So you can visit my website at www.courageousartistry.com. I'm also at Courageous Artistry on Instagram and I'm at Courageous Artistry on Facebook. And I have a business page there and I'm starting up a group soon. And I, on my social media, if people are social media users, I share a lot of videos and tips and I try to um, be as much in service to the community as I can be. You can also reach out to me via my email, Ingela, I-N-G-E-L-A at CourageousArtistry.com.
And if people are curious about my services, even if you're not sure if it's a fit for you, but you'd like to learn more, I do, as I mentioned, offer a free 60-minute consultation call where we can really figure out if I'm the person to help you. And if I'm not, I'm always happy to provide people with a list of resources of where they could go to get help if, if I'm not going to be the right fit for them. That's so generous. Well, thank you. And I will be keeping your information and recommending you. To Great. Thank you. Oh, and one more thing. You attended my free webinar recently, Judy, and I offer, at least for this year, 2021, I'm, I almost got, I almost said 2020 because everything has been such a wash lately, <laughs> right? Um, for this year, 2021, I'm offering one free online workshop per month, and you can find out more information about that on my website. Well, I highly recommend you guys look for that because the information, well, you'd take, you'd take 60 minutes to have to have to explain all the yeah. information <laughs> that you give in that workshop. Uh, and I'll leave all the links to these things Thank in you. the podcast notes. So Ingla, you have a wonderful, wonderful day and year. It looks like we're all going to be maybe stepping out into performance land a lot more this year. Yeah. So yes, uh, yes. when these things crop up, we know where to turn. <laughs> yes, I hope so. Thank you so much for having me, Judy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you, All Things Vocal Village, for joining us today. I bet you know what I'm going to ask you next. Please leave a review. Simply go to ratethispodcast.com slash A-T-V, which stands for All Things Vocal. Thanks. This is Judy Rodman. Find me at judyrodman.com, and we'll see you next time on All Things Vocal, the podcast for singers, speakers, vocal coaches, and studio producers.